0: Well, I think that if you're observant at all in life, then you've recognized probably by this point that there is an order to absolutely everything that God creates. And I'll go even further. There's a great value in knowing and understanding that order. I'll give you some examples. There's an order to the stars. Have you noticed that? And as a result of knowing and discerning that order for thousands of years, men and women, you know, before there was GPS, before there were maps, before there were charts, before there was a globe that you could spin around, before there was even a compass, were able to successfully navigate the lands and seas, by the stars. They discerned the order. They saw the 12 signs of the zodiac pass over their head throughout the course of the year. They were able to establish a calendar in months and all of these different things. They discerned from the stars, and as a result, they also could say, all right, look, I'm facing this direction, and I'm here. They could chart their courses and get where they needed to go. There's an order to absolutely everything God creates, and there's great value in understanding the order. We see that in chemistry. You know, through all kinds of different experiments and whatnot, and some of them that have gone awry, no doubt, you know, we have discerned a certain order to the chemical properties of this world. And so we have found out that if you mix this and this, you get this. And if you mix this and this, you get this. And if you mix this and this, you blow up your living room. Right? You mix this and this, you get this. And I mean, it's very predictable. It's very orderly because it is ordered. Every kid in America that has YouTube now knows that if you take a handful of Mentos and you take, you know, one of those two-liter gallon or two-liter bottles of Coca-Cola and you freshly open that dude up and you drop the Mentos in and you do it in the kitchen, you're in trouble. Why? Because it paints your ceiling with Coke, okay? It's like this volcanic explosion. If you've not seen it, go on YouTube. It's way cool. But don't do it inside. It's predictable. It's consistent. It's consistent. And that's because of the order with which God creates all things. You see, you drop the Mentos in, guys, and not one out of ten times, not two out of ten times, not nine out of ten times, but ten out of ten times you get the same reaction. And for ten out of ten people, it doesn't matter whose hand they come out of. It's remarkable. Our bodies are ordered by God. And almost all of modern medicine is in some sense predicated upon that order. You know, doctors are able to consistently, reliably, accurately, and with great predictability treat our physical conditions when they're properly diagnosed. Why? Because of the order of our, our bodies. We know these things. Everything God creates, He creates according to an order. And there's great value in understanding that order, and there's no difference between the stars or the chemistry or our bodies or this life that we're all trying to lead well. God has created all things according to an order, and that includes our lives. That includes this world. That includes the way things work on planet Earth right here and right now. And so there is huge, massively great value to understanding what that order is, And the good news is that God comes to us, and in His Word, He, in a sense, gives us the order. In other words, He comes to us, and He says things like, well, if you do this, then this will happen. And if you do this, this will happen. If you do this, you get that. If you don't do this, let me just tell you what's going to happen next, and then this, and then that. It's kind of like the Mentos and the Coke. Not one out of ten times, not two, not ten, or not nine, but ten, right? And for ten out of ten people, life has an order. And God comes to us, and He gives us that order in His Word. And apart from that understanding, you know, we're trying to navigate life, guys, without a GPS, without a map, without a globe, without a compass, and without the stars, and without light. We don't know what direction we're facing. We don't know what direction we're heading. We don't know where we're going. We don't know where we are but God gives us the order in His Word. And so on this Father's Day, this day when we dads are celebrated and affirmed and appreciated, and I appreciate all of that, on this Father's Day, at least when I am anyway, most acutely aware of my need for the understanding of the order of things, of wisdom or skill for living, I want to look at some of God's wisdom for living. And specifically, I want to look at the statements of an aged, godly, incredibly wise father who's come to the end of his life. And you can almost picture it, you know, his sons come in and they're going to say goodbye. And he says to his sons, listen, here's the thing, I have one last deposit of wisdom for you. I mean, if if you forget everything else that I've ever taught you, I hope you don't, but if you do, just remember this one thing. And then he takes this one thing and he conceals it in a riddle that literally is 33 verses long in Proverbs chapter 30. And that's a little befuddling because you would almost expect he'd call him in and hand him a three by five card, you know. I mean, it's just a short little statement, you'll see. Laminate it so it can't get messed up, you know. Give him five or ten, you know, put it on your mirror, put it in your bathroom, put it, put it in your wallet, stick it on your desk under the glass. Why doesn't he do that? Because it's too easy. This is a very, very skillful man, and he understands that what comes too easily we don't appreciate. He wants them to work to find it, that they might not only appreciate it, but remember it. There's one message, and it's hidden in all of these many sayings. It's kind of like he, he lays down a bunch of tiles on a floor, you know, tile after tile, saying after saying, but all of the tiles come together to form one picture, one idea, And you can take any one of these tiles out of the floor and take a look at it, and they're beautiful and they're instructive, they're helpful. I can do a whole sermon on any one of these sayings. I have no doubt about that. But our challenge this morning, and guys like a challenge, so it's perfect for Father's Day, is for you and I to do the work of climbing up the staircase, if you will, and to go up to the balcony on the second floor or the third floor or the fifth floor or the tenth floor, whatever floor it is that we need to work our way up to, to then be able to look over the railing and to look down upon all of the sayings and all of the tiles and to see how they all fit together to make this one little statement. So that's what we're going to endeavor to do this morning. And this man's name is Agur, and he begins his riddle for us in Proverbs chapter 30, beginning in verse 1, where it says literally the words or the sayings of Agur, okay? So there are a lot of sayings. There are lots of tiles is the idea. The words are the sayings of Agur, the son of Yachah, okay? And that's the last time I'm going to try that. The words of Agur, or the sayings of Agur, the son of that guy, the oracle, that's singular. He's saying, look, in the first phrase, here's the deal. A lot of sayings, lots of little flooring tiles, one prophetic message. He's saying one thing, and the challenge is for us to figure out what it is. The words of Agur, the son of that guy the oracle that the man Agar declares to Ithiel and to Ithiel and you call his two sons. Now, many of you are pregnant, so you might want to write those names down. It's rough. He's talking to his boys. And then if you're a teenager, you're going to love this because you've never heard your dad say this. But hang on a second. Don't run too too fast by it. What he's about to say is not just true of him. What he's about to say is true of me And it's true of every one of you. It's true of everybody walking around on planet earth. When you understand what he's saying here, you kind of get that. He says, surely I am more stupid than any man. And I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. What he's saying here is, left to myself, on my own, apart from the God who has ordered and structured all things in this world and in this life. And apart from His Word in which He reveals that order to us, I'm navigating in the dark, man. I don't have a GPS. I don't have a compass. I don't have a map. I don't have a chart. I don't have the stars. I have no light. I have no skill or wisdom for living in this world to offer you. Apart from what the Lord gives me. And the Lord has given him a prophetic word. The sayings of Agur. The one oracle. So he's taking his boys, and he's pointing them and the rest of us to the Lord who has ordered all things. And he does it very skillfully. Look at how he draws us into this conversation through a series of questions. He says to his sons, and he says to us, he's like, Hey, surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. But hang on a second, I'm not going to stop there. He then says, verse 4, who has ascended into heaven and descended? He's saying, listen, wisdom resides in heaven. And if you look around, wow, is that ever true? You and I prove that all the time. We as humankind prove that all the time. The wisdom of man leaves you walking around in the dark, wanting for direction, wanting for life. He says, "'Who has ascended into heaven and descended?' He's saying to his sons, "'Hey, look, wisdom resides in heaven, and I haven't gone up there, gathered it up, and then come down to give it to you.'" He's calling them to God. "'Who has ascended and descended?' Just the Lord. "'Who has gathered the wind in his fists?' Well, that rules out a lot of folks, doesn't it? "'Who has wrapped the waters in his garment?' Clearly he's talking about God. "'Who has established all the ends of the earth?' Who is it? Because it isn't me, Agar is saying, and it isn't you, my two sons, and it isn't any of us either.'" And then he says this, he says, what is his name? He is calling us to name the name of the one who orders all things and fashions all things after the counsel of his good and perfect will. He reveals his order to those who come to his word. Those who take it in. He says, what is, his, what is his name? And then he says, or his son's name. And the son in the book of Proverbs, which is where we're at, is not so much a physical descendant as it is a disciple. He's saying, do you know the name of this one? And oh, are you his disciple? What a challenge. And then he says, surely you know. Surely you know his name, and surely you know if you're his disciple or not. Agur is giving us a riddle, you see. It has many different sayings, one really short prophetic message from God. And as you begin to ascend those stairs, you know, and you're kind of peeking over, kind of peeking over, kind of peeking over, trying to see what they all kind of sort of come together to form, you're beginning to see the picture if you're following because the first part of this little message from the Lord is know God. He's calling His sons to know God, the source of all wisdom, the source of light, and the source of life. And it's not just a message for him and for his kids. It's a message for me and for you, and it's a message for our kids. And so it's to the Word of God he very naturally turns. He says, every Word of God is tested. That's verse 5, meaning that it's proven. If you do this, this happens. If you do this, this happens. If you do this, this happens. It's like the Mentos in the Coke. Not one out of every ten times, but ten, and for everyone. Every word of God is tested, he says. He, God, is a shield, meaning by His word, to those who take refuge in Him. Now think about that for a minute because that's one of the things that Proverbs teaches is that God is our protector, but He protects us oftentimes through the wisdom that He gives to us. His word is a protection to us as we store it up in our hearts and store it up in our hearts and store it up in our hearts, and then by the power of His Spirit, as we live out His wisdom, we find the path of light and safety. We wake up to the fact that we're no longer navigating life without a GPS map, globe, chart, compass, stars, or even a flashlight. He protects us with the wisdom, the skill that He Himself gives to us with which we are to live. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, oh boy, does He know our hearts. But as you'll see in a minute, he knows his own heart too. See, the reality is that we come to God's Word, where He gives us His order, where He provides for us the boundaries within within which we are to operate in all of the different areas of our lives, and within which we operate securely, safely, freely, wonderfully. And the truth is we don't like them. Do not add to his words. For that matter, don't subtract either. Don't take them out of context. Don't make them say what you want them to say to accommodate anything. He's saying, Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Do you know why? Because if you do this, you get this, and if you do this, you get this, and if you do this, you get this, and you drop the mentos in the coke. It doesn't matter whose hand they're coming out of. Same reaction. And then just before he gives us his main body of sayings, he lays down most of the tiles. He gives us the very heart of this whole chapter, and it's a prayer. I want you to listen to the prayer of this aged, wise, godly dad. He says, two things I ask of you, O God, do not refuse me before I die, because I'm at the end of my life. And I'm going to give this one last statement. I've got a prophetic burden from you to deliver." And so he says, keep deception and lies far from me. Because I know that I don't always like your word either, God, and I don't want to add to it, and I don't want to distract it, and I don't want to subtract from it, and I don't want to distort it. Lord, I want to speak the truth to my sons and to all of these people. Make me truthful. Because I'm not always truthful. And I'm not always truthful. Truthful. We deceive others, we deceive ourselves. He's saying, make me truthful that I might speak the truth. And and then he says this, he says, give me neither poverty. And we've all prayed that, haven't we? Everybody's on board with that one. And here's the rest of the prayer that separates him from all the rest of us. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. He's saying, listen, Lord, give me everything I need and don't give me another dime. Wow. Wow. What's up with that? See, here again, he knows his heart. He knows its vulnerabilities. He knows its passions. He knows its pride. He knows its appetites, and that's a key word today, appetites. Appetite for honor. Appetite for credit. Appetite to kind of, you. frankly, I don't want to really have to rely on anybody including God. Appetite for this. Appetite for that. He understands the vulnerabilities of his hearts and of his passions and of his appetite. He says, God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? He understands that his heart can only handle so much wealth before he starts patting himself on the back and disregarding God. And you know what? That's true for the rest of us as well. it make you happy to hear that? If it doesn't make you happy to hear that, why? You know, God doesn't call us to take an offering and worship Him with, his, with our wealth simply because He's running out of cash, you know? He's not sitting up in heaven kind of balancing His books going, Oh, goodness, I hope this is a big one because I've got a big bill here and I've got to pay on Monday. And he does it to break us from relying too much on stuff, and to call us to Him for our security. The one who never fails, Agar is being really honest here, isn't he? He has a prophetic message, one message amongst all the statements. Give me neither poverty, he says, nor riches, feed me with the food that is my portion that I might not be full and deny you, and say who is the Lord, and also that I not be in want, that I might not find myself lacking and in need and then steal and profane the name of my God. Here's the bottom line. Agar is going to talk to us today about our appetites. He is going to talk to us specifically about what happens to us in this life when we allow our appetites to drive us to violate the order, the boundaries that God in grace... And in wisdom, establishes for each one of us in life. He's gonna charge us. He's gonna talk to us about our hearts and appetites. And so, he comes to God and he says, Look, I wanna talk about appetites. So, manage my appetites, make me prudent. Make me wise. And then he begins to give us these sayings, and he starts laying them down, again, like so many tiles in a big mosaic. And as we climb up the stairs, thus far we've seen no God, and pretty sure at this point that the second part, the rest of the statement is going to have to do something with appetites and the boundaries that God establishes for each one of us. So laying tile upon tile, Agur then says this, verse 10, he says, Do not slander a slave to his master. He's saying, Do not put down or lie about an inferior to his superior. And you're thinking to yourself, Why would I do that? And the reason is your appetites. My appetites. We put other people down because of our appetites. Our appetites for money, our appetites for status, our appetite to get credit, our appetite for position, our appetite, you know, for entertainment, for crying out loud. We put people down because we're bored at times. And notice the kind of people that we put down. Do not slander a slave, a disadvantaged person, a vulnerable person, a person who has no real recourse. We're pretty savvy about who we pick fights with. But Don't miss what else he says. He says, Do not slander a slave to his master or he will curse you because that's all he can do. But the point of agar is that that's enough. Do not slander a slave to his master or he will curse you and you will be found guilty. By who? By God because there is a God ordained order to this life. And one of the boundaries that God establishes is a boundary of protection, and He establishes that boundary around the disadvantaged, around the weak around the vulnerable, around the needy. He's beginning to show us boundaries, Agar is. And he's showing us that when we cross those boundaries in satisfaction of our own appetites for whatever, and we step, for example, here, on the head of a disadvantaged person, that we incur the judgment of God. He's kind of coming to us with the Spirit, and He's throwing out examples. You know, if you do this, this happens. If you do this, this happens. If you drop the Mentos in, do it in the neighbor's yard, okay? Because it's ugly. He then continues... He says, there is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. So now here's another example of a boundary. What is the boundary? He says, honor your father and mother in the Word of God. And this guy's not only not honoring mom and dad, he's throwing off their God-ordained authority in his life. He and his passions and his dissatisfactions with the way that they are governing over him is kind of disdaining them, throwing them off, and doing his own thing. He's crossing the boundary. See, it's just a second example. There is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. And what do people look like? What do we look like when we knowingly transgress the boundaries of God? He describes us. He says, there is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet he is not washed from his filthiness. The word filthiness is really sort of tame. It means uh, poop, okay? Um, I mean, I, that's it. It's excrement. How about that? Is that fancier? doesn't smell any better, does it? Doesn't look any better. He's saying these people who transgress God's boundaries, boy, they're pure in their own eyes. They've got all kinds of justifications and excuses and, and if you knew this and if you understood that, and they're pure in their own eyes. And what are they covered in, in reality? I think I have found myself there before, haven't you? And I think we kind of know what we're covered in too, by the way, when we're there. He goes on, he says, there is a kind, and then he's like, he's overwhelmed. Oh, how lofty are his eyes. His eyelids are raised in arrogance. There is an arrogance when we ignore God's boundaries in our lives. Why? Because we're in a sense saying, I know how to run my life better than you do. I know what brings me freedom. I know what liberation is. I know what enjoyment is. I know where satisfaction resides. I know what true joy, you know, is coming to me if I really? Or are we walking around in the dark with nothing by which to navigate? He says, there is a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes, and his eyelids are raised in arrogance. He says, there is a kind of man whose teeth, he's speaking of our mouth, he's speaking of our words. There is a kind of man whose words, is the idea, are like swords, and his jaw teeth like knives to devour the afflicted, the disadvantaged. There's that theme again, from the earth and the needy, Aha! Uh-huh, there they are again, from among men. And again, what causes us to do that? What causes them to do that? It's our appetites. And so listen to what he says about our appetites, because now he's going to describe them to us and it's really graphic. He says, the leech. Now, what is a leech? It's this ugly little thing that sucks your blood, right? And when it's full, it stops, doesn't it? And it says, hey, thank you very much. You know, it leaves a dollar on the table or whatever, and it never lets go. It's never full. And it gives birth. It multiplies. Good grief. The leech has two daughters, and I love the names. They're give and give. You can talk to them and call them both at the same time. Give. They're like, yeah. But he's gone from one leech to two, hasn't he? The one leech has two daughters, give and give. And then he says, there are three things. Wow. That will not be what? Satisfied. Four. Do you see how he's escalating this? That will not say enough. Do you know what he's saying about our appetites? He certainly is not saying that if you feed them, they'll be Satisfied. He's saying, the more you feed them, the hungrier they will get. You know, that's a sobering thought. This man has been very honest about his heart and appetites already, has he not? I think that calls for some self-examination where we look at our appetites and say, what am I feeding in life? And what is it bringing to me? Because it's not what... I think we set out hoping to get. The one leech has two daughters, give and give. There are three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. And then he gives us some examples. He says, Sheol, which is the grave. He's saying the grave is never satisfied in receiving death and the barren womb which is never satisfied in giving life and the earth that is never satisfied with water it always seeps in and a fire that never says enough you've never been sitting around a fire and thrown a piece of wood in or thrown a piece of paper in and thrown frankly anything flammable in only to have the fire kick it back out and say hey you know what i'm good it doesn't work that way with fire it consumes absolutely everything that is flammable and it just keeps growing that's my heart. That's your heart. That is the appetite of man that causes us to disregard God's boundaries and thus far we've learned to incur God's judgment. And Agra makes that really clear in his next statement, He goes back to the son that mocks a father and a mother. He says, the eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, this dissatisfied son who again is throwing off the God-ordained boundaries that God has established for him in life. What happens to that guy? Well, the ravens of the valley will pick it out. That sounds like fun. And the young eagles will eat it. That's gross. He's saying, God will judge him. And I know you're thinking, no, it says something about eagles and ravens. But where are the ravens and the eagles coming from? It's poetry. They're just swooping it down from heaven in judgment. It's a picture of the judgment of the Lord upon those who disregard His boundaries. And so then having spoken of things that are driven by their appetites to violate God's boundaries, He then turns to things that live within God's boundaries. And he describes them as being almost unspeakably wonderful. It's like even the poet here runs out of language by which to kind of marvel over it. And that's saying something. Verse 18, he says, "...there are three things which are too wonderful for me, Four, Do you see? He's escalating it. Four, which I do not understand, for all of their wonder is the idea..." And then listen to what he says because it's very poignant. He says, "...the way of an eagle, but where is the eagle?" The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of a sea, and the way of a man with, with a maid, meaning with his virgin bride. He's coming to us and he's saying, look, an eagle is free, but only if it stays in the sky, only if it respects the boundaries that God has placed it into and within which he soars. However, if the eagle starts looking down and he's dissatisfied with soaring in the sky and he decides that he wants to be a fish, he dies, doesn't he? You get the idea? A snake is great as long as a snake decides he doesn't want to be a bird. As soon as he jumps off the cliff, he's done. A ship is free in the ocean. But put him out in the desert, and he's going nowhere. And he's saying that there are delights contained within the confines, the boundaries of marriage and sexuality that are not found elsewhere. Agar is saying that there is a God-ordained order to this life that we're living, and that this God-ordained order contains boundaries, parental boundaries, ethical boundaries, sexual boundaries, all kinds of boundaries. And the wise man stays within those boundaries, and like the eagle, he soars, you see, and there is a majesty to his life, and there is a beauty to his life, and there is a glory to his life, and there is a freedom to his life. That's the great irony. We look at the boundaries of God, and we feel bound, when in reality, we're set free to fly, and we're saved from wandering through life, bumping into things, wondering, what direction am I heading? Where am I going? And oh, by the way, I just fell in a pit. Again, if you do this, you get this. If you do this, you get this. If you do this, if you put the Mentos in, it happens the same way. So he continues, there is the way of an adulterous woman. So this is a dissatisfied woman who seeks to satisfy her appetites outside of the boundaries of marriage. And you know what? Maybe it's just to get attention. Maybe that's her appetite. Whatever the appetite might be, she eats and wipes her mouth, he says. She hides the evidence and then says, I've done nothing wrong. So she justifies what she's doing, claiming she would do nothing wrong. No doubt, again, being able to make the case of, well, my husband did this and my husband this. And, that, you know, and, and if you understood, and it, I, I know. But why are you hiding the evidence if you've done nothing wrong? That's the irony contained in that statement. That's what he's saying. And what is the result of that conduct? It's collapse. See, now he's shifting gears a little bit and he's saying, look, he gives us example after example of boundaries that we transgress, and, then, and after example after example he said it incurs the judgment of God, it incurs the judgment of God, it incurs the judgment of God. He comes to this one and he's saying it incurs the judgment of God, but it also brings a collapse into your life. It brings the collapse of family. It brings the collapse of all kinds of things even the collapse of society, which is what he turns to next. He says, under three things, this is verse 21, the earth quakes, it trembles, it shakes, it becomes unstable. And under four, so now he's escalating it, it cannot bear up, it can't endure, it collapses under a slave when he becomes king, when this slave violates his station in life, if you will, and through wickedness, malice, and in all likelihood murder, usurps the king and steals the kingdom. What now does that society have? It had a benevolent king, now it has a dictator. An evil dictator, society, quakes when those kind of boundaries are broken. Everybody's affected. He says, in a fool, when he is satisfied by food, if we as a society satisfy the appetites of the foolish and the lazy, the earth will quake. Society will collapse. We'll go bankrupt for many other things as well. Gives another example, under an unloved, meaning a contemptible woman, a woman without the character to raise children and govern a home. When she gets a husband in a home is the idea. And a maidservant when she supplants her mistress, both of which destroys the family, the very building block of society. And then here again, having given us these examples of folks who are driven by their appetites to violate the God-given boundaries, He shifts gears and he gives us examples of those who live within their boundaries. And again, it's wonderful. He says, four things are small on the earth. They're not big. They're not, wow, they're not celebrated. We don't go, oh, wow, there's an ant, you know, unless we're having a picnic. But they're exceedingly wise. Why are they wise? They understand the parameters. They live within the parameters. And they do no harm to one another. They do no harm to themselves. They're free like an eagle in the sky, like a ship in the sea. He says, four things are exceedingly sm- or small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are not a strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. Instead of devouring it all because they're hungry in the moment, they devour some and they store up. They respect the seasons. They understand the rhythm of the year. They know the boundaries. They live within it, and they live skillfully as a result. They live well. The shephanim—it's a rock badger—are not a mighty people, and yet they, these rock badgers, make their houses in rocks. Why? Because they're rock badgers. And guess what? That works out really well for them. They succeed. The locusts have no king. They don't have you know political election seasons. They don't take opinion polls. They don't have parties and candidates and commercials and all of that kind of stuff. They're not divided, is the idea. They're united. They don't battle for prominence one with the other. The locust has no king, and yet all of them go out in ranks, and they can destroy your whole harvest. They're so powerful. "'The lizard you may grasp with the hands.'" I said at the last service, I said, personally, I use a napkin. And then my wife came up afterwards. She's the really frugal one in our home, and she says, you use four napkins. And, uh, and I pray that the tail doesn't come off in the process, because that's it for me. I'm done. As soon as I see that thing squirreling around, it's like, it's it. But the point is that you can grasp a lizard with your hand. It's a vulnerable creature. It's not powerful. It's not strong. It's not impressive. It's none of those things. And yet, where does it live? Yet, it is in kings' palaces. And then he goes on, he says, there are three things which are stately in their march, even four which are stately when they walk. They are regal. They are proud in their element, within the boundaries that God has created for them. The lion, which is mighty among beasts and does not retreat, he's fearless. Before any, the strutting rooster, the male goat also, and a king when his army is with him, there is a fearlessness to us when we live as God calls us to live. We stay within His boundaries. Then he concludes with this. Verse 32, he says, "Ithiel and you call my sons," he's saying, "If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have plotted evil, if in your appetites you have exceeded the boundaries that God has established for you, cut it." out. He says, put your hand on your mouth. Stop, he's saying, for the consequences are predictable. For the churning of milk produces butter. You see, if you do this, you get this. Every time, he's saying, I can tell you where the road ends that you're on. And pressing the nose brings forth blood. Not occasionally, but every time and for everyone. And so, the churning of anger produces strife. Now, that's a whole lot of sayings. That's a big, long riddle. But if you've made it up the stairs, if you can look over the rail, you can see how all the tiles come together. I think what he's saying here is this, and it's simple, and it's short, and it's the prophetic burden of the Lord. It's know God and live within His boundaries. I think that's it. It really is the whole message. You know, he gets to the end of his life and he's like, "Okay, got one last thing for you. Here it is." Because there is an order to absolutely everything God creates, the stars, chemistry, your body, and this world and life that all of us are trying to live skillfully. We're trying to negotiate successfully. And it contains boundaries, and within those boundaries we soar like the eagle, man. There is a majesty and a beauty and a freedom and a fearlessness to our lives, knowing that we are living out the life that God has called us to live, the way that he has called us to live it. We are free, not bound. But when we in foolishness transgress it, well, you know, I mean, if you do this, you get this. If you do this, you get this. If you drop the Mentos in, even if you drop the Mentos in, it's the same result. And the problem is our appetites. I mean, we can grasp all this conceptually. Okay, cool. I've got to know God, live within our boundaries. He's the only you know, source of wisdom. He understands the order of life. He's ordered it. He's given it to me in His Word. I get all that. I've got to know God and know His Word and live within the boundaries that He's given me. The problem is that I can't do that. Not on my own. So what's the answer to that? Well, I told you the heart of the whole riddle is the prayer. You and I need to do what Agra did. Two things I ask of you, O oh God, do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Hey, Lord, you and I need to have a really honest moment about all these boundaries that I've crossed. About all the consequences and the darkness that I've sown into my life. About the fact that I need to be washed and made clean by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And I need to be filled with His Spirit and given a new start. That's available through the gospel. You understand that, I hope. And what then is the fruit of the Spirit? Because it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and then what's the last one? Come on. Self-control. I don't have that one. That's not the fruit of Tom. It's not the fruit of you. It's the fruit of the Spirit of God, as we press into God, as we seek to know God, as we pursue God, as we come to understand God in His Word, and as we cry out to Him in our weakness for the strength that none of us on our own has. So, Agar gets to the end of his life, and he calls his two sons in the room. You know, you can imagine it. And he says, all right, here's the deal, boys. If You forget everything else, and I hope you don't, but if you do know God and live within His boundaries. And then He gives it to them and to me and to you in a 33-verse riddle so that we'll never forget it. Okay? All right. If you're a father here this morning, if you would stand, I want to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you guys as the leaders of your home. I ask for God's blessing on each one of us, that He would fill us with His wisdom. Lord, we do thank You uh, for this day and for this moment. God, we thank You most and foremost for our Savior Jesus, through whom the the slate can be wiped clean. God, You are the God of second chances and of third chances and of 102nd chances. Father, we do praise and love You for that. Lord, I lift up this group of men to You, all the responsibilities that they have, all the pressures that they're under, all of the things that they're involved in. Father, I bring to You their heart and mine, and I pray that we would have an honest moment, that You would fill us with truth and with grace and with the power of Your Spirit. Let our lives, as we pursue You, be characterized by all the fruit of Your Spirit, and God, give us the control we need to live safely within Your boundaries that we, together with our family, with our wives and kids, might soar for Your glory. I lift these guys to You. I pray that You would protect them, that You would bless them, and that You would give them great joy, love, and appreciation in this hour and in this day. We praise You in the name of Jesus. Amen.